And then your word goes on to tell us, Father, that we should be careful as we draw near, that we do not offer the sacrifice of fools. Fathers, we understand what that means in the scriptures. We understand that so often we can be fools. We can be foolish in thinking that we are like you or you are like us. We are not. We are the creature and you are the creator. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are from the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And our life, our very existence, has both come to pass because of your sovereign grace and is continuing in its existence because of your sovereign grace. Father, we see in your word in Colossians that indeed, Christ, you are sustaining our life even now. The very words I speak, the very air we breathe, the very ears that these men listen to this prayer offered unto you is all happening because you sustain our lives. God, we thank you for this grace. We do not want to waste this grace. We thank you for the lives we've been given. We don't want to waste the lives we've been given. God, I pray that this morning could be yet another installment into our hearts and therefore into our lives so that they would not be wasted. God, it is true. We only have one life to live. And all of it is supposed to be lived unto you as an offering. I pray for each and every man present here this morning that they would choose not to be normal. God, you would have them to be exceptional. They would be the exception to the rule. They would not be known for just being male, but being men. And that they would cause a reformation first in their own homes, in their own family legacies, in their own local church. That, God, we might be able to put you so clearly on display with what happens with this group of men. Help me, Father, this morning to unpack your word, make it come alive in our minds, in understanding, in our hearts, in application. Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we learned last night, using World War II as an example, that history does teach us. Nothing new there to learn as to that principle of history teaching us, but it's often good to be reminded of how history teaches us. What I want us to learn from this morning, by way of analogy and illustration, is not World War II. I want to go back even further. I want to go back to the days of the Scriptures. Let's have a crash course history lesson here coming from the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, parachuting into this timeline of human history, what's happened, obviously, as we know, is that Christ has come, He has lived, He has died, He has resurrected, and He has ascended. He has sent out His disciples, the people have responded, the gospel has been preached, He has appeared to originally Saul, renamed Paul on the Damascus Road, He has that conversion experience. Here's the gospel. Peter then understands at the parallel time about the opportunity for the gospel not just being for Jews, but also for Gentiles. Something they're having a really hard time with in the Jewish church. Uh, seen even in Acts 15, just saying, hey, we're going to get over this. And uh, we're going to look at this. We're going to see the reality of this. So there goes Paul under the commissioning of the Acts Council, Jerusalem Council. He is sent out and to take the gospel into places that are unheard of, ironically, by a Jew himself. You see sort of in Philippians, sort of a Jew of Jews, if there was such a thing. He, uh, he has sort of the, uh, the Ivy League resume of Jewish uh, pedigree, and this is where he goes, not to Jews, but to Gentiles. He comes into town, his history is going to synagogues first, he takes the gospel there, but inevitably, as it happens in every town, he's next thing you know, he's put out of the synagogue, and so he goes to the marketplace. See that in Acts 17, he's, there he is waiting, and he's waiting for Timothy, and so there he is at Mars Hill, and so he has this conversation, he sees the city, and they invite him, they want to hear from him, because these Greek philosophers fancy themselves in hearing new things, and so let's get Paul to tell us some new things, who is this guy who's got these new things, and so he preaches the gospel to a room, or to a, really a stadium full of non-Christian people present, who have no religious background and association from the perspective of Jewish religion. An understanding from the Old Testament. Acts chapter 19, having set that stage, is the establishment where Paul comes to the town of Ephesus and he establishes a church. He preaches the gospel, people respond to the gospel, and the church starts and grows. And from, for three years, from A.D. 53 to A.D. 56, that church is growing. And he is there with them for three years. So let me just say that again back to you. In, in Acts chapter 19, he shows up. He's there 
in Ephesus, preaches the gospel, people get saved, people grow, this church grows, and before he leaves, he appoints elders to be in charge of the church. He's with him for three years, he leaves. A year later, he's passing through the region again in Macedonia, and he calls, in Acts chapter 20, he calls for the Ephesian elders to meet him on the seashore that he might see them one more time before he gets on a ship to head toward another part of the world. So, again, starts the church in Ephesus, is with them himself for three years. So I just want to talk about our church planting pastor. <laughs> How about the Apostle Paul? That'd be pretty cool if you asked me. I'd resign and come to his church. <laughs> so there he is. He's, the, he's pastoring, he's planted the church, pastors it for three years, leaves, continues in evangelistic ministry and planting churches, comes back to the region, not exactly in the town, but in the region. These elders meet him on the seashore and have this conversation together in Acts chapter 20. A year after he's left them, now in the fourth year of this church, a year after he's left them, and he just has a very candid conversation with these men. <laughs> he talks about his ministry to them. He says, listen, I, I, I denied you nothing. I taught everything to you. It's yours now. But then he also charges them about the reality of the responsibility that has been entrusted to them to give leadership to this church. And he says, you need to be on the lookout. You need to be aware. And he goes on in Acts chapter 20. He even talks about false teachers coming from within the church, even from some of you, he says, as a possibility. Well, that's not really a motivational speech. That's not something discouraging talk there. So that's A.D. 57. Okay? Acts chapter 20. Now, let's jump ahead now. Three years later, Paul is in prison. Three years after he has left them, he is in prison, and he writes, while in prison, the letter, Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus. Three years after he's left them, it's already starting to come to pass. False teaching has come. They're starting to pull the church apart. Problems within the church and issues going on, how the church is engaging to, with each other. Young church, immature church, relative to you know some of our churches. So for example, the church I pastor, by way of privilege, is 113 years old. This church is six years old, seven years old. Paul writes them the letter of Ephesians. And you can read the letter of Ephesians and see, wow, for a church hasn't gotten that far from the apostolic ministry that established it and the accommodation that was given to their leadership to see all the problems that have begun. That's A.D. 50, excuse me, that's A.D. 60 when he writes that. <clears throat> Two years later, after he writes the book of Ephesians, he's out of prison, he's traveling through Macedonia, and he comes to Ephesus. To deal with two false teachers. Then he leaves Timothy behind to deal with this church while he continues on. First Timothy, this Pauline letter to Timothy, is a letter to Timothy to deal with the church at Ephesus. Now I was going to put all that together for you. Go back to our timeline. A.D. 53, he plants the church. He stays with them for three years. A.D. 56. <clears throat> A.D. 57, he comes back through in that area again, sees the elders, and gives them a huge apostolic charge. Recorded in Acts 20. That's at A.D. 57. In A.D. 60, so three years after, he is in prison writing to them because it's already starting to take place. A.D. 62, he's out of prison, coming back through town to deal with these two teachers, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he has to deal with. And he addresses this issue with them, and he leaves Timothy behind. Now, i got to ask you guys a question to consider. If a church that's established by the Apostle Paul as a church planner, whose elders have been under God's sovereign hand chosen by the Apostle Paul, who have had Timothy sort of be on the fringe of the, of the second generation of pastoral influence, can go as wrong and as bad and as quickly as the Ephesian church has? 
what makes you and I think that we're not any less suspect and not any less subject to that kind of problem? I mean, gentlemen, I need you to understand something here. The reality of the church is not even just in the generation that comes after you. From the timeline we see in Scripture, it's within your very generation. So when Paul then tells Timothy, Timothy, we got to like this is we got we got to go Ephesus 2.0 here. Are rebooting this thing? We're going to reformat the hard drive. And so what happens? Go to go to First Timothy. First Timothy, appropriately so. He says here in verse 3, As I urge you, speaking to Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, he says, Remain in Ephesus. He's already gone through there. Timothy, you remain in Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So goes a church's teaching, so goes a church. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he goes on to basically say, just warning them against these false teachers. Warning Timothy to teach this church yet again. So like, let's repeat this lesson all over again. Comes into verse 12 and he reminds them about the significance of Christ. Comes into chapter 2 and reminds them about the reality of how they pray, not only for themselves, but they pray for people far outside of their own domain, even those in government and leadership and beyond. Not the kind of leadership we even have today. We, we stumble over like, you know, Democratic versus Republican. That's like kindergarten politics. Comparison to first century Christianity, right? I mean, some people like choke on Obama. <laughs> You're like, how about Nero? <laughs> how about Nero? Who takes Christians, covers them with tar, sets them on fire, and lights the streets with them. That was what Paul was writing in Romans 13. Obey the government, for it's a gift from God because it brings a sword. Can it be abused? Sure. It's just like... Yeah, we, we ought to kind of graduate from our sort of, you know, issue of our issue of how we somehow have a hard time with our difficult Christianity and politics. And I say, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like in the heartland of this issue. There's one musician wrote it in a song. You know, there are two great lies that, uh, that have been told. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely not die, the garden. And Jesus was a white middle class Republican. <laughs> That's what we. He really? He wasn't? He wouldn't have been? Because if. Uh, really? No. Anyway, I digress. First Timothy 3. This is the context. He's going to start all over again. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task, a noble work. <laughs> oh. So what he's saying is here, hey, people, just so we're clear, if you're going to have leadership in a New Testament church, Timothy, you're going to have to understand and reteach these guys because we're going to go 2.0 on them. This is a work. This is not about a position. This is about a practice. But the practice comes first from what they've already done from their own lives. So look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how would care for the gods for God's church, for the argument from the lesser to the to the greater. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. What's happening here? Here's what's so remarkable in the text of First Timothy three is how normal every qualification of a leader in the New Testament church, i.e. the elder, the overseer, the bishop, how normal every qualification is minus one. Able to teach. Everything that's asked of an elder in the New Testament passage here is asked of every single Christian in some other part of the scriptures. The only difference is in this category of being able to teach in the capacity, as it is obviously an issue, to be able to teach what is sound and refute what is false. These people are the guardians of God's word, of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the local church. So you've got to get people who know the word. 
not just know people. The church that I pastor, they uh, when I came to the church, very humble men who, who were elders in the church, but they were very honest and said, hey, here's the deal. We're voted as elders, because it's, you know, it's just kind of a whacked up, kind of weirdo thing how it all works out, but basically they're voted. He said, we're just kind of voted in based on popularity. So sort of, you know, who the people know the most and who the people um, who we sort of know the most or sort of just determines who gets voted in to be an elder. And in their humility, said, I'm not, they said, we're not really sure if we're actually qualified to be elders. It's just sort of by default, we kind of made the elders because we know the most people. I'm like, first of all, one person you need to know the most is Jesus Christ and his word. And then we'll work from there. If you don't have that relationship real solidly dialed in and the knowledge of his word and the capacity to teach that to others, we're already you know, behind on this deal. But the reason I want to get to this issue is to speak to you guys as men this morning is because we talk about leadership in the church. Sometimes if we think we don't have the title of a leader, we've not been given the function of a leader, that those expectations are not put upon us in responsibility and character expectations. The reality is the reason you have elders be described as these things is because you simply ask them to live out the functioning portfolio of the Christian life in such a way that what they then teach people from the scriptures is illustrated with their life. That that's what happens with their life. So, for example, speaking again in the context of the church that I pastor, we came to this, this section and talked to this and I, I meet with the, the elders and so we have a monthly elders meeting and and, uh, and that's an important meeting, sort of the time to oversee matters of the church and really give attention to the mission of the church and how we're advancing the gospel and the work we're seeing and the discipleship is taking place and member care issues and some counseling scenarios we're going to work out and some, some challenging issues we're going to think through there. And so I said to the men, gentlemen, this time will not be enough time to accomplish what we need, which is honestly the discipleship of each other and the growing and advancement of our own eldering instincts from the scriptures and from our life. So we began to meet every other Tuesday morning, and we've been doing that for the last two and a half years. And for a six-month window, we met every single week just because of the, the situation which we're dealing with in our own lives. And so we just started with 1 Timothy 3. You know, just sort of like nothing new under the sun here, just like it worked for them, let's go to us. And so 1 Timothy 3, we just began unpacking. So this is kind of how we just kind of made this thing very simple. So, okay, guys, here's the deal. This maybe was never expected of you, but here we go. We're going to start this thing now, and we're going to pick up the speed fast because this is a problem because right now we're undermining the whole ministry of the local church here. You are supposed to have been described as having been practicing hospitality before you even made an elder. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, uh, Zach, it's got a favor to ask you. If we make you an elder, do you think maybe you could start doing some hospitality? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I know you're kind of a busy guy, but it's kind of important. <laughs> Jesus is kind of big on it. Um, you know, I thought it might be. So do you think you could kind of make that a priority? Do you think maybe kind of kind of get that thing going? And I kid you not, I had one elder actually have a conversation with me who was not yet known. He's like, hey, now if I, this kind of shows you kind of the maturity of how our church is kind of growing and understanding. He's like, now, um, if, I, if I become an elder, like, how serious are you about this hospitality thing? <laughs> I kid you not, it's a conversation. <laughs> and I said, I- I'm just as serious as Jesus is. Practicing means a characteristic description of a normative rea- reality of your life. So we look at sort of like, you know, how serious are you about me practicing integrity? No, I'm pretty serious about that too. Because <laughs> that whole above approach thing seems to qualify in a manner that's like, I had this episode of time. It's kind of a, you know, it's sort of a rare time where I got all godly. And then I, you know, then obviously that, that stops and then I kind of go back to this. And, and so when someone says, hey, where have you been godly? You go, yeah, there was that time. <laughs> See, there, there it is. But it's like on hospitality, right? You're like, you know, so, you know, hospitality, so, hey, was that time? Yeah, there was that time. I, remember that birthday, 10 years ago, people came over, it was great. I say this, gentlemen, because the expectation, I'm just using a nuanced reality here, the expectation of all Christians in the church is hospitality. It, this, is, this is normative Christianity. This is an exceptional Christianity. Hebrews talks about it in, in such radical ways. It says, hey, just so you're clear about hospitality, about even entertaining strangers, so not just Christians, but non-Christians. Some of you might even be entertaining strangers unaware, he says, in Hebrews. Uh, that's a bit radical. It kind of makes you like, you know, look at somebody different. I wonder if that's, just, I wonder if that's an angel. I mean, it's just what's being taught there in the text. All of this, gentlemen, is to get us to this reality. Leadership, picking back up what we've talked about last night, leadership, in summary, by term, is example. 
Where do you see this in the text? Go to 1 Peter 5. We've got one more passage we're going to land in after 1 Peter 5. I'm, just, I'm building a case here that I want us to understand the normative expectation from the Scriptures of how our lives are lived. 1 Peter 5. Peter, not Paul now, Peter. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder. So in his humility, he's not sort of sitting above them. He's sitting with them in his exhortation. He's submitting himself to the same exhortation. As a a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a glory here, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, meaning the glory is not in the human life we live, but in what's coming after, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So he's speaking to the elders. Shepherd. All of the imagery that comes with that. Exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering. So it just kind of goes with this, you know, you know, positive, negative, positive, negative. Not domineering over those in your church. But, here's the key, but being examples to the flock. Gentlemen, leadership in life, whether it's serving as an elder, or serving in your home, or serving your job, comes by simply being an example. That everything you would expect of another, everything you would want for another, is by practice, not by perfection, but by practice being worked on your own life. Now, why does this connect to what's going on in this room if it's not a room full of elders? Because the normative understanding, the normative orientation in the local church with men is men to men. I said this to you last night. Men don't follow programs, they follow men. So the question is, if a man is following you, or if you are following another man, what are you following? What are you being more like, and what is somebody being more like if they follow you? Well, this is the last passage in which we sort of plant ourselves in this morning. Titus, back in this understanding of establishing the local church. If we see churches can go bad so quickly, so fast, and we see that the establishment and the continuation of godly New Testament biblical leadership is the means by which you counter that slide, and we understand that that slide comes not only from teaching soundness, but also living it by illustration, we actually ironically look to not only the elders of the church to model that, but we look to everybody in the church to fuel that. So that fuel, again, look at Titus, similar Paul writing, different audience. Titus is the audience, different location. It's not Ephesus, it's in the island of Crete, establishing churches, same similar qualifications of elders. Very parallel passage, what I just read in 1 Timothy 3. But you move quickly from the establishment of leadership to sort of the, the, the reproduction of that through discipleship. And that's what happens here in Titus chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Just stop right there. So, if we establish godly churches through the gospel and the recognition of godly leaders to continue, those, to continue leading those churches, then we grow godly churches through discipleship that comes to every single man and woman in that local church. So, by way of consideration, as already a point of application and reflection to consider, how are you contributing to the future life of Calvary or to the future death of Calvary. 
your answer to that is found based upon your connection to discipleship in your church. Now, time does not permit me to give a primer on discipleship. But I simply want to say, and I'll get into it in some part here, that your relationship to discipleship is not only a demonstration of your humility, but it's also a demonstration of your love for something greater than you, which is Christ's church. See, here's the promise from Matthew 16 from Jesus. Christ says he promises to build his church. Against the gates of hell will not prevail. He just didn't promise to build your church. He promises to build the church. Here's what's so stunning. The church at Ephesus, you can't find it today. You can find the church. You can't find the church, local church at Ephesus. So local churches are representations in locale of the greater body of Christ. And that's what the biblical norm is. And that's right and appropriate. But as to the relationship that your local church has to the greater church and the gospel testimony of the church of Jesus Christ is largely dependent upon your faithfulness to what God has intended for local churches and relationships. Think about Proverbs 18.1 as a consideration. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. Let me just say it to you again in a reality. So what it says is, for a man to pursue a life of relational isolation, to use another repeated proverbial term, is a fool. I say, well, that's, that's often kind. You know, you're supposed to be giving me a hug and be committed to my self-esteem. I'm committed <laughs> to Christ's esteem, not your esteem. Christ's esteem is being built up as in the measure and the manner in which you're being faithful to Christ, which ironically leads to your joy, not to your suffering, your pain. So the reality, though, is so often in the church, particularly with men, more so than with women, isolation is the norm, not the exception. But what happens in Titus, Paul tells Titus, this is absolutely unacceptable in relationship to each other. You not only have sound doctrine, coming from your leadership in your church, you not only have lives who are then being impacted by the sound doctrine and growing godliness, but then you have lives who are influencing each other in relationship so that generationally that legacy of godliness doesn't just die when you die. So let's go back to the text and see it before our eyes. The first foundation for discipleship in a local church is going to be the reality of sound doctrine. Sound teaching. You, we rise and fall on gospel truth. We, we rise and fall on the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude would say. So, in so much as the church is sound in its teaching, the church has the capacity, not yet the guarantee, has the capacity to be sound in its church. But if you miss the soundness of its teaching, no matter how many relational structures you have and environments in which you're together in, it can never be sound apart from the scriptures being first being established. And thankfully, under your pastor, Dave, it's not a question. Your legacy, your timeline shows you have been known for faithfulness and teaching. But now you don't just move from faithfulness and teaching. You go from now now faithfulness and demonstration. So you look at it in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So what happens is term sound in faith, Paul is sort of playing off on the terminology here that he's already used in verse 1. Sound in doctrine, now sound in faith. So now you're talking about sound in the fruit that comes from doctrine. A life of faith, a life that's characteristically known for its godliness. Not only its theology that it subscribes to, but in demonstration of the fruit that's seen because of it. And you see that just sort of unpack here in the text. And it's no different. It's like this is just a conversation for men in the church. It's the same thing for women. But notice how God is intentional here. And this is another good example in the scriptures of how God is intentional in recognizing the differences between men and women and what they're to be known for and what they struggle with, what the challenges that they face. So he describes these things that old men are to be known for and young men are to be known for. So, gentlemen, let me just ask you a question. 
particularly those of you who would perhaps identify yourself sort of by self-reflection as being older men in this church, are you known for being sober-minded? What's a, what's a modern-day example of that? I find, ironically, Christian men can struggle with serious conversations of any length of time. Not all Christian men, some Christian men. The currency of conversation instead becomes sarcasm. It's like my ability to sustain a meaningful conversation with you for one minute, two minute, three minute. Oh, this is getting so uncomfortable, so I've got to break this up by telling a joke. Listen, I'm not against humor. It's a gift from God. A good laugh, wonderful. I mean, that's a gift from God. But ironically, sarcasm as a means of conversation can be a, a, an escape mechanism that otherwise says, I'm uncomfortable with continued, ongoing, sober-minded conversation. This is uncomfortable. This is intimate. This is personal. This is mature. And I want to return to my immature conversation. <laughs> well, friends, let me just say here, I don't mean to create some sort of environment in which, you know, you're now measuring each other. Like, who's the first person to tell a joke? Oh, you're the immature guy. Just, yeah, I appreciate that. Now I know who the guy is. It's over here. I'm not just telling you his initials are Jake. So you know, um, yeah, but anyway, no, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, gentlemen, you come to these descriptions of this idea of being sober-minded, you have somebody who understands... The fullness of life that's been given sees the joy and the sorrow, understands the reality of that, and engages accordingly. Dignified, self-controlled. This understanding of, of, of compassion, of the idea of self-control. Again, we don't have to struggle hard to find these things identified. You know, John says, if you take all the worldliness around us and you sort of boil it all down to three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful part of life. You say, well, you know, you know, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm good there because, you know, I'm not like those people, which sounds ironic, a lot like Luke 18. Um, so glad I'm not like that guy. Um, because I, you know, I don't, I don't do whatever it is that you sort of categorized as being the lust of the flesh. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a pornographer, so I'm good. I'm macked on my credit cards, but I'm not a pornographer, and I'm good. You know, so you're telling me you struggle with lust of the flesh. No, no, because I thought lust of the flesh, but I don't lust after women. That's certainly part of it. We understand lust of the flesh is a whole lot more than that. Your capacity to exercise control over your mind and over your money, over your time and over your tongue, is how well we see whether or not you're self-controlled. And I think therein lies some of the deeper tests of spiritual Christian maturity. How well you see that work its way out in your life. Being self-controlled. Sound and faith spoke to that already in, par- in passing. Just to briefly describe this reality. Just the soundness of it in trial. Soundness of it in patience. Soundness of it in understanding God's providence in life and how you respond accordingly. In love and steadfastness. The sense of resolve and character description that's given there. Gentlemen, I ask you, for those of you who identify yourselves as being older in this room, would the younger men in this room think of you like that? Would they think of you as being sound in faith, sound and sober-minded and self-controlled? Would they think of you in some ways being, you know what, when I grow up, I want to be like them? Or do they just sort of off the scenes, kind of behind, you know, sort of unplugged, sort of say, well, he's a good guy, I really like him, he's, you know, very personal, or he's got this going for him, but... There are just a number of areas I'm sort of saying, I don't necessarily want to be like that in. So there's sort of a la carte their pursuit of you. If they even pursue. The younger men in the room, you, you see yourselves in verse 6 being spoken of. This issue here about being self-controlled. You know, it's characteristic of what Paul teaches Timothy as well about fleeing youthful passions. The reality of the maturity that comes in this um, you know, as again, as Paul is saying to Timothy. So, don't think youth is a patronizing description, because Timothy is considered youth. And he's establishing churches and training elders. So, don't think of youth as being a patronizing, well, I can't do anything because I'm youth. Because he says in 
First Timothy chapter four, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity. We look at Paul giving similar instruction to Titus on how he should be teaching the younger men. In summary, he just calls and says, hey, you're to be self-controlled. You're to have capacity to control yourself and the actual function of that. You know, gentlemen, I think what's important in your relationships to one another is to first of all identify, do you have relationships to one another? Question number one. Question number two is, if you do have relationships to each other, how do those relationships fuel each other into growing godliness? I, uh, on the phone with a friend of mine, uh, spoke uh, to a very dear friend. We, we have been friends for many, many years, uh, going back to Florida, and uh, was talking to him about you know, how he's doing, how his walk with Christ is, what's going on in his life, how's married life, how's he doing as a father, what's going on, and just talked about so many things. And he just talked about, you know, honestly, his, his, um, his heart's dry. He's not ungodly. He's not out, you know, you know traveling and losing money and embezzling endeavors. He's, he's just feeling his heart is dry. He feels like, he feels like his marriage is sliding. And again, not ungodly, just like you're not being intentional in pursuing my wife and dating her and loving her and developing these good godly conversations. And so my question is, who is in your life to whom you would have these conversations with that you would confess this to? his particular circumstance he said well it's very difficult because of being in leadership that is hard because the temptation is that people will interpret oh no we have a bad leader (laughs) no you just have a a sinner for a leader (laughs) but that's where the rest of us are as well but because that environment in which he ministers in is so new to this environment that people don't sort of understand this. And that's sort of the chicken and egg principle, unfortunately. You know, which one goes first? The leader or the people? So the people understand and the leader starts to practice. And I said, in what environment do you work out your confession to then move to your repentance, to then move to your accountability? Right? You can get, for example, I can get a bunch of teenage guys together as a student minister, former student ministry's pastor, and I can pretty much, after enough relationship, get a whole lot of confession. Man, I tell you what, pastor, I'm struggling. I looked at that girl and I lost him. It wasn't good. I don't feel good about it. I know it's wrong. I just want you guys to know. Okay, that's not bad. That's confession. But confession is the same thing as repentance. Repentance is the desire to actually turn from what you're confessing and to not repeat it again. So now what are the actions to what you're going to take to repent of that, the fruit of that repentance? Well, I I just thought I'd tell you. Oh, no, 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 friend. Friend, it, for to know this about you and to not speak to you about it would, would be to not love you, be to hate you. So we now mean to move in our relational environments to go from confession to repentance to then in the relationship that we have to go to accountability. Accountability and encouragement. I just asked you guys, normative Christianity here, to whom do you confess? I confess to the Lord, Pastor. I praise God. Hallelujah. But to whom here in relationship do you confess? This is, this is the one another's working itself. Confess your sin one to another so that you might pray for each other. Not pray for each other's surgeries coming up in two weeks. Pray for your neighbor who had a lost job because they knew somebody named Mike who has another friend named Bill. And because of their circumstances at work, they're struggling with a tax file return that might come back on them in five years. What? And we could, we could pray about them. Here's what I found when you get together in prayer meetings. We pray for everybody outside the room. Mm. And then we pray for the people in the room. We have knees, ankles, and elbow prayers. Pray for my knee, pray for my ankle, pray for my elbow. We pray for physical things. My heart, oh, don't go there. Do not go there. <laughs> that is, that has got a, that has got a, you know, do not cross sign across the front of it. <clears throat> Friend, Proverbs 18.1, you're isolating yourself. You're breaking out against all sound judgment. You're setting yourself up. Something that I want to give you, I, I, I wish I would have thought ahead well enough to have all the copies made. I do not. So I'm going to email this to Dave 
Dave is going to make copies of this and make this available to you guys. It's just something I wrote up for the men that I disciple. Uh, lessons on biblical manhood. And one of the areas that I think would be a good thing for, for us to consider in your relationships to each other, both in peer relationships and in discipleship relationships. I have here is this issue of leadership in the home. Twelve areas to evaluate your leadership in your home. So you go proactive, not reactive. You don't wait till like, okay, i got to tell you something. My wife and I, we haven't talked to each other in like three weeks. And honestly, we haven't had physical intimacy in like four months. Couples do that? Young men, no, wonder, do that. Couples would do that? Oh, yeah, couples do that for sure. So to whom am I having that conversation with? That's a reactive environment. I'm talking a proactive environment where you don't ever get to those days. I have this sheet here that I want to give to you. Again, Dave will, will print it and mail it to you. Areas to evaluate the gospel. How clear is the gospel? A point of regular conversation in your home. How are you daily manifesting the lordship of Christ in your life? Character, humility, manhood, commitment, accountability, sacrificial service, ministry, encouragement, and exhortation, maturity, finances, parenting. These 12 categories to consider as you begin to work this out in relationships with one another. I think the reality, gentlemen, from what we see in the New Testament church, from the church at Ephesus, the church in Crete, on the island of Crete, and the church here, Tennessee, is that we don't have to wait until a generation until you guys are gone. We just have to wait for more years and it could happen. But it not happening is simply a matter of of coming to the scriptures, having every person present who professes the name of Christ. And I don't know if that's true of everybody here. Some of you might be living a cultural Christianity. It's really something I, I've seen very much the case when I lived in the South and very much the case I live in the Midwest. It's a cultural Christianity. You subscribe to the name of Jesus. You have a testimony by talking about a time when you prayed a prayer and you invite him in your heart. You've learned all the lingo. You know all of that environment. And that's sort of how you throw your social acceptance card into this room. That's sort of how you keep people out of your life. No, everyone stops evangelizing. It works out really well. You benefit from the morality of it, the friendships that come as a result of it, good guys, nice people, and good cooking. How could that be a bad thing? And meanwhile, you live your whole life, and then you die and you go to hell, having deceived yourself that you were in Christ by faith and in faith alone. That's a point of examination for people here tonight, or today. Assuming that's not true of you, and if that is true of you, friend, I would ask by the power of the Holy Spirit to work right now into your life to turn from your sin and to turn by faith in Christ. Not faith in your church, not faith in your history, not faith in your pastor, not faith in your knowledge, but faith in Christ. Assuming that that is not the need, but the need is one of continuing growth as it is in my own heart. Then, friend, I mean to ask you from the Scriptures to say, how are you working this out in relationship with one another? Some of you are doing this, I'm sure, phenomenally. My encouragement to you, through that Thessalonian way, is excel still more. And Paul says that Thessalonians, i got no need to write to you. You have no need to write to you to anybody. This love issue, you got this stuff like, you're PhDs in this stuff, he says. My point, he says, here's all i got, excel still more. Some of you have got PhDs in discipleship. Your relational quotient is off the charts. Your maturity in Christ, in His Word, and in relationships, in both confession and accountability, repentance and discipleship is like, I mean, it's, it's the stuff of stories. Excel still more and teach the rest of us. Disciple the rest of us who don't know yet the fruit of that in our own life. Others of you, perhaps, a time of repentance, a time of change, a time of returning. Right? That's what repentance is. That's, by the way, we named our ministry not 360, but 180. Because <laughs> it was not our intention to go back to the sin we came from. <laughs> but that sort of, you know, First Thessalonians, you know, chapter 1, 7 type understanding of that. You turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So and we, when we repent, we turn to God from the idols of our life. Comfort is an idol. Pleasure is an idol. Freedom is an idol. Possessions are an idol. Jobs are idols. 
Sex is an idol. All of these things that God can give to us as gifts to be invitations to worship Him and to offer unto Him, we then say, thank you, God, for the gift, and I now don't don't need you. To which we kind of return to that Dr. Phil psychology counseling. How's that working for you? Mm -hmm. I know, it's working. It's not. From the Scriptures, it's not going to work. There's no joy in that stuff. But there's joy in the Lord and faithfulness to His Word and the manifestation of that in your life. So, gentlemen, my encouragement to you and I have more things that I'll send to Dave in this document that you guys can talk about. And what you'll have here, I'll, I'll give you an example. It says, the following are a list of questions for you to put in another person's hands and to interact with. So think of it like this. Uh, how many of you have ever boxed before? Ever boxed? Okay, so, you know, four or five of you. And probably, yeah, I want to just confess, just as a time of confession, be an example to you. I have boxed, unfortunately, as a, as a boy in the neighborhood before I was saved. So just keyword there. Remember that? Um, I was a fighter. I actually one time fought a girl. I just want to confess that to you. I actually went back to her after I got saved, asked her to forgive me. Just we're clear. Tell, finish the story, okay? Just remember that part of the story, too. I have put on gear, gone in the boxing ring. Boxing is exhausting. Right? And look at these guys, like, why does that guy just stand still? What's all that about? You know? I'm telling you what, boxing is exhausting. You're like, two minute round. Who couldn't go two minute round? Uh, you probably couldn't go two minute round. I just want to be clear on that. And this stuff is exhausting. You know, like, then you watch these guys go like round after round after round. I mean, it's just physically exhausting. You've got to train for that stuff. You've got to condition for that stuff. And so there they are in the speed bag. There they are in the jump rope. There they are running. There they are doing everything they can to be able to have both the strength needed and the cardiovascular endurance to be able to make this stuff last. Here's the reality. For some of you, stepping into the ring in a relationship and asking to us some conversations, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This, we're moving fast and going far, and I don't know if I can handle this that much. That's fair. That's just spiritual conditioning. You need some more time on the bags. He needs more time and jump rope. But the reality is not to not ever step in the ring. It's to train more to get back in the ring. So the questions I have here for you are questions that you get in the ring with somebody else and you put the questions in another person's hands. You put the headgear on. You put the mouthpiece on. I'm like, all right, let's see what you got. Hit me. Okay, two shots. All right, I'm done. I need to take a water break. I don't need to know. Who? Two questions. Are you asking like these are stuff? Like you got more of this stuff? I'm not ready for this stuff. Just kind of like give me a week or two. I'll come back. We get back together for lunch. You can ask a couple more of these questions. You're taking my breath away on this stuff. That was a sucker punch of the gut. <laughs> questions like, how many days this past week have you read your Bible? Questions like, have you been with a woman this past week in a way that could be viewed as compromising? Questions like, have you viewed sexually explicit material? Questions like, how was your battle against ungodly thoughts like unbelief, lust, pride, jealousy, covetousness? Questions like, have you exercised and controlled your eating? Questions like, have you neglected to give appropriate time to your wife and family? Questions like, have you lorded yourself over others this week? Your wife, your children, your coworkers, etc.? The question is like, did you worship, not just attend, did you actually worship in church this past week, and what's the fruit of that already being seen? Questions like, are you financially sound or living beyond your means? Questions like, are you even being honest and transparent with me right now? Some of you, even like putting the head on for the first time, a question or two, ring the bell, give me a couple weeks, I'll come back. That's fair. My question simply to you this morning is, do you actually get in the ring? Or do you actually consider yourself a good boxer, a good Christian, but never have you actually stepped into the Christian life in relationship with another person and engage in a manner in which Jesus wrote in his word and he lived out himself with other people in life? So you can call yourself mature all day long, as, as can I. I can have the title pastor. I can study the Bible and teach and sort of ascend, descend back into my life away. The reality is that this stuff is being worked out in the context of community, of relationship. I'm just fooling myself. But I'm not fooling the Lord. And truthfully, I'm not only fooling you. We go back to what happens in the scriptures. Churches lead with leaders who lead by example. 
So guys, my question is, what is the example of your life? Does it need to change? Or does it need to stay the same? And who else are you drawing into that example with you? For good? And for God's glory? Or just for your own sort of idolatrous selfishness and isolation? That's what we see in the New Testament. The question you have to ask yourself is, is that what we see in your life? And for all of you to answer collectively, is that what we see in our church? I don't know the answer to that. But you do. And I pray that if I was with you in a year's time, that would only but increase in its quotient at Calvary. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to feast on your word. God, we confess we go home with leftovers. Much to think about. The gift of your word, the capacity for it out of your spirit's work in our heart to encourage us while simultaneously convict us. We thank you. For we understand that this is no mere book. These are no mere words. This is words from heaven, gifts from you to us that are balm to our soul, medicine for our sickness. God, we thank you that the promise of all of these things is that it's not a replacement for our faith. It's the manifestation of it, that ultimately everything leads back to Christ and the cross. God, I pray for these men. I pray that they would not waste their life, waste their money, waste their homes, waste their children, waste their marriages, waste their jobs, waste their spiritual gifts, waste their minds. God, that all of it would be an offering to you. Whether it be given by way of hospitality, given by way of investment of relationship and discipleship, given by way of careful, disciplined desire to pursue you, given by the opportunity to care for others who are deeply needing compassion and care and love and acceptance, care because of the soundness of your word that is being that is growing in their hearts. God, let them not waste their lives. May I not waste my life. For we only have one to live. And all of it, and every day of it is a gift. God, I thank you for Pastor Dave. I thank you that he has been what your word has asked of leaders in the New Testament church to be. Examples. That what he has preached, he has lived. That what he has asked of others, he has desired in humility to practice himself. God, I pray for the men of Calvary that they might follow in that example. An example that simply is Pauline in nature, Lord, that we see from your word. As Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That we have churches of people radically pursuing you, Jesus. I thank you for the young men here. And I thank you for the old men here. God, I pray for them and their relationships to one another. For their discipleship. For their maturity. For their godliness. For their good. And ultimately for your glory. May you bless them. May you care for them. As you continue to love them. In Jesus name.